Well, please turn with me in our Bibles uh, this evening to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7, and you'll find this on page 259 in the church Bibles. And this evening we're reading verses 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Every day uh, we have to make plans. Uh, sometimes we make plans for the short term, uh, what we plan to do today or tomorrow, but sometimes we have to make plans for the long term, uh, for the days uh, further uh, down the road. And it's good to be people that make plans and to organize our lives. Uh, maybe we know someone or maybe we are that someone who has planned out things in meticulous detail 
about what we hope to do in life or where we are planning to go. Uh, it's good to have a, an idea of what we are hoping to do. But sometimes uh, our plans get interrupted. Uh, sometimes a curveball comes or things change directions and new plans emerge. This evening we are looking at an occasion where someone's plans are interrupted. David's plans are interrupted by God. And instead of focusing on what David plans to do, God comes to David telling him of what God plans to do. And this is really important that uh, as we're coming to this passage this evening that we learn that lesson. That as important as our, less, our own plans are, more foundational, more important is living in light of God's plans. Because think about it, why do we make plans? We make plans because we want to acquire, we want to attain, we want to realize what is good. But our efforts are limited and our perspective is limited. We can't always bring about what we plan to do and sometimes we don't even know what the good would be. But God's plans are always good and God's plans are more sure. And so as we look at this passage this evening, David had plans in mind about what the good would be. But God comes to David and impresses upon him his plans are what he needs to live in response to. And as we're looking at this passage this evening, we want to see that God's plans revolve around a coming son of David. That God's plans revolve around a kingdom. And because God has revealed those plans, our hope must be rooted in those plans as well. Dale Ralph Davis, a commentator, explains this passage this way. He says that, David is, that God's plans to David are about a kingdom. And that kingdom is a kingdom that cannot be defeated by death, that cannot be canceled by sin, and cannot be exhausted by time. And that, that characterizes something of the wonder of this kingdom that is being promised to David. Death cannot annul it. Sin cannot cancel it and time cannot exhaust it. And so we want to see that God's plan here is about a kingdom, a king whose reign endures forever. And we want to simply look at God's promise, God's plan to David in two thoughts. We want to see how God's plans are focused on the future. And then we want to see that God's plans are certain to be fulfilled. His plans are focused beyond David and how they are focused and will be fulfilled in the future as well. Well, first then, we want to look at this idea of the future focus of God's plans. This is in light of everything that has been achieved. David has taken the city of Jerusalem. He has conquered uh, Jerusalem and taken it from the Jebusites. And really, David has fulfilled a key component of God's promise to Abraham. You remember the land of promise, the land of the Canaanites and the Amorites is also the land of the Jebusites. David has realized God's promise. He has acquired the land of promise in taking Jerusalem. Not only that, but he has also solidified or unified the people of Israel. All the tribes of Israel have anointed him as their king. And so Jerusalem is this capital that brings together or solidifies the people as one. But more than that, we are told that David has now uh, established his reign as he has built a palace. You remember back in chapter 5, 
It told us that the king of Tyre was involved in this great building project where David would have a palace for himself. So David now has a palace some days later. And he is told at the beginning of, uh, at the beginning of chapter 7, it tells us that he now has rest from all his enemies. In many ways, we might think that David has arrived. David is no longer being pursued by Saul. David now has rest from his enemies. He now has solidified himself as Israel's king. He has a palace for himself. And many of the things that David was aspiring for have been achieved. Even when we think about God's purposes of giving the people a promised land and a place to dwell in where they would be blessed, it seems like it has been achieved. And what we are seeing here is, is as David is thinking over his situation, he begins to muse about the dynamics that he finds himself in. Here he is living in this palace of cedar, but the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark that represents God's presence and God's covenant with the people of Israel is in a tent. And David is simply musing over this contrast. Here he is in this honored Position, this honored and exalted state of having a palace, and the ark doesn't receive the same kind of treatment. And so, as he's musing over this with Nathan, nothing explicit is stated, but it seems to be that David is thinking about some kind of upgrade that would uh, give honor uh, to the ark of the covenant as well. And so, David here has come to a place where he feels like he has arrived, perhaps we could say. And he is now uh, thinking over uh, what to do next. And Nathan gives him his blessing, saying that the Lord is with him. But that very night, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan with a message that he is to relay on to David. And that message is one that really interrupts David's plans and tells him that he has to live in light of God's plans. That as, as much as David may think that he has come to a place now where he can simply enjoy and uh, celebrate what has been achieved. The Lord comes to him telling him of what the Lord purposes to do. It's hard to overstate the importance of this passage that we're looking at this evening. That may not seem to be the case. Uh, maybe when we're looking at this, it may not seem like a very striking or a very important passage because it is a message for David. And it's so long ago. But this passage is vitally important for understanding God's plans and God's purposes. And we can see that in a number of different ways. The first way that you can see that this is an important passage is because this is the longest speech of God since the days of Moses. Moses was the mediator between God and Israel. Moses is the one who received the law from God. He's the one who came and revealed to them uh, the Ten Commandments. He's the one who led the people through the wilderness. Moses was the one who was having communion with God and would relay that onto the people. But now this is the longest revelation of God. This is the longest speech from God since Moses' time, which tells us that something significant is being revealed that God's purposes continue to unfold, that it doesn't stop with God's law, but that God is showing them what he plans to do. And here in this speech, God is revealing that to David. 
The second way that you can see that this is an important passage is in terms of the covenantal themes, some of the ideas that are uh, embedded in that message. When the Lord comes with this message for David, you'll notice that he begins by recapping the relationship between him and David. I am the God who brought you from being a shepherd. I'm the God who made you prince over my people Israel. The Lord explains that I'm the one who gave you victory and cut off all your enemies. This is what I have done. This is what frames the relationship. In other words, it's just as how God came to Israel at Mount Sinai. He, he summarized for them his dealings, what has happened, and what has shaped this whole relationship. And so he comes to David in that same kind of way of explaining the terms of this relationship. But more than that, in verses 9 through 11, you'll notice that he uses the same themes of God's covenant promises from of old. Notice what he says in verses 9 through 11. He mentions three things. He says, I will make for you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. In verse 10, he says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And in verse 11, he says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The three elements that are promised there are a great name, that he would appoint them a place, and he would give them rest. Those are all the same elements that God promised to Abraham. When God came to Abraham, he promised him that he would bless him. I will make your name great. In Genesis chapter 12, it says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In Genesis, we are told that God promised Abraham a land and that he would give him rest and blessing as a result. And so those promises that were given to Abraham are now being bridged. They're being connected to David. They're essentially the same promises. But now we're being told that God's promised blessing, we're being told two things. We're being told that God's promise to Abraham has not been fully realized. Even though the people have come into the promised land, even though they are numerous, even though they have enjoyed blessings physically, the promises are not exhaustively fulfilled. They go beyond Abraham. They go beyond Moses. They even go beyond David. And so here is this promise of what God will do. I will make your name great. I will appoint a place. I will give you rest. It's linking back to what God has promised, but it's now developing it. God's plan now involves a kingdom. God's purpose of blessing involves a king. When God came to Abraham and he promised him those blessings, up to that point we are being read and told about the curse of sin. We're seeing the brokenness of a world marred by sin. But it's with Abraham that we get this word blessed. It's in Abraham that we begin to hear about God's favor, that God will make in Abraham and through Abraham a blessing to be showered on the nations. And so here this is being picked up and developed, even with the promise that comes uh, to David. So it is highlighting that God's promises have not been exhaustively fulfilled, even to Abraham. 
But then more than that, it is highlighting that God's plan involves a kingdom that will last forever. Just as we were saying with Dale Davis, a kingdom that cannot be annulled by death, that cannot be canceled by sin, and that cannot be exhausted by time. All of this is drawing attention to God's purpose. So why is this passage important? It's important because it is a long speech, the longest revelation of God since the time of Moses. It's important because it is connecting God's promises through scripture. And it's also important, and we can see it in light of revelation after this point. John Woodhouse makes a very important point. He says, everything that is said in scripture about a Messiah after this point is rooted in 2 Samuel 7. Everything about a Messiah is rooted in this idea of a promised king. That helps us appreciate the importance of what is being promised here. God's plan involves David's kingdom. The promised blessings of God to reverse the curse of sin, to bring his favor on a world that is subject to the fall is realized in and through the line of David. And so as we're coming to this this evening, we want to see that the focus goes beyond what has been achieved. It's not just that a nation is enjoying physical prosperity. God's plans go beyond that. It goes even beyond the fact that David now has become king. God's plan goes beyond even David. And as we come to our verses this evening in verses 12 through 16, you'll see that it is about after David. When your days are fulfilled, David, when you lie down, when you die, my plan continues. In other words, the climax of God's purposes are not even in David. It goes beyond David. God's developing and he is unfolding his purposes that should point us ahead. God's greatest work lies in the future. So it is after all that has been accomplished, but it is even after David's own life. Notice there in verse 12, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. That word offspring is a word that can have a collective idea or an individual idea. It's the same reason why it's sometimes translated as seed. Uh, It's the word that was used with the first promise of the gospel, that the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. It's the same promise that was given to Abraham, that the offspring of Abraham would inherit the land. That language is being used here about David's offspring. That uh, after David's time has been fulfilled, uh, uh, David's offspring uh, would have a great work. So when your days are fulfilled, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will make firm, I will establish his kingdom. The kingdom is already established, but it is being made firm and secure or made strong. The Lord will cause uh, David's kingdom to endure. Uh, it, uh, uh, and he will have a work, uh, the work that David was intending to do, which was to build a house for the, the name of God, that he would build a house that would represent God's name and that would uh, capture uh, God's glory. 
And so all of this is being highlighted about the offspring of David. But it says the Lord will cause his kingdom to endure forever. So God's plans, his promises, are centered on David's dynasty and a kingdom that endures forever. David was not to build that temple. And the reason in the book of Chronicles is because he was a man of war. The house of God was to be a place that symbolized rest. It was to represent the rest that is enjoyed from having communing, communion with God. And so it wouldn't be fitting for a man of war to be the one that builds that house for God. Instead, it would fall to the offspring of David. And ultimately, uh, it would be something that Solomon, David's son, would bring about. Solomon would build the temple. Uh, But even Solomon does not fulfill exhaustively this promise. How do we know that? We know that because the temple represented peace. And the, the, the peace that Solomon enjoyed was temporary. Even when Solomon dedicated the temple, when he prayed at the dedication, you remember that Solomon himself confessed that God's promise went beyond him. He didn't identify himself as the sum and substance of the promise, but he saw that God's plan went beyond him. So Solomon himself recognized that God's plan went beyond even himself and the physical temple. And the other reason why we know this goes beyond Solomon is because even what was represented in the temple, the physical temple of Solomon, was the presence of God and communing with God that fellowship with God. But the physical temple of Solomon was limited in what it could provide in terms of access, that there were limitations. Whereas Isaiah the prophet points out, uh, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. What was Isaiah saying? God's presence is with his people. He will make his presence known with those who humble themselves and call upon him. That's what the temple was meant to convey. God desires to dwell with his people. And what the Lord was saying through Isaiah is is that God will make his presence known wherever the people humble themselves and call on the Lord. And so the, the physical temple was meant to picture that. But it wasn't the fullness of that purpose. It was pointing ahead. So yes, we can say in an immediate sense, Solomon fulfills or he realizes this promise, but not exhaustively. God's plan goes even beyond Solomon. But it's focused on an offspring of David who would build a house for God's name and who God would cause his kingdom to endure forever. There's a future focus to God's plan. It goes beyond what has been accomplished. And it goes beyond David and it goes beyond even Solomon. But God's plan is a kingdom that does endure forever. 
And we see that being stressed really in these verses here. We see it stressed in two ways, this certain fulfillment of God's plan. The first is in verses 14 and 15. It says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That father and son relationship is not something new in scripture. It begins even back with Abraham's offspring. The offspring of Abraham are described as God's firstborn, which means that God has chosen them. They belong to the Lord and that they need to obey and love the Lord in response. And here this language of father and son is what sets apart David's kingdom from Saul's kingdom. Saul's kingdom, you remember, was rejected. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. The Lord rejected Saul because he did not honor the Lord. But here the promise is that God will cause David's kingdom to endure because he will be a father to David's kingdom. That the offspring of David will be as a son to a father. That there will be this binding relationship that holds them together. You think about that. That a person is a a son or a daughter of their father and mother. That is a binding relationship. You don't undo that. Whatever happens, you are still the son or the daughter of your parents. You, You have that relationship with them. And here, that's what is being stressed. No matter what, God will remain the father of David's kingdom. And the offspring of David will remain the son to the Father Almighty. And so this relationship is what shapes the difference. It's not as though David's kingdom is going to be without sin. That's not the difference. David's kingdom will have sin. In fact, that's what it goes on to say. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. When he turns away, the Lord will discipline the offspring of David. But his steadfast love is what is going to support that relationship. In other words, the Lord will ensure that David's kingdom endures forever. The basis of the confidence in God's promises is ultimately God's steadfast love. That word is a word that is oftentimes translated as covenant. And covenant is one of those tricky words that can be has a richness of meaning. How do we capture what it means to have covenant? And commentators point out that the word covenant can be uh, looked at with three aspects. It has the idea of strength. Uh, It has the idea of loyalty. And has the idea of love. It's not simply the idea of loyal or commitment. Not just a commitment to the, the law or not just a commitment to what is duty bound. But it is a commitment that goes beyond even obligation. It is why some translate this as mercy. It is, it is a commitment shaped in love. And so this whole relationship that is being established, this whole promise that God's promised blessing is being realized in the offspring of David. How do we know that God's plans won't, won't go to, to foil? How do we know that it won't all go in the garbage? We already saw Saul's kingdom crumble. How do we know that David's kingdom isn't going to go the same way? 
And the promise is based on the fact that I will be to him a father because of my steadfast love, because it is based on my commitment and my mercy. And so the, the plan of God is grounded in something strong and secure. And the second reason why we can trust in God's plan of God's promise here is, is in that language of forever. You'll actually see that uh, that language is repeated again and again in these verses. How is it uh, that uh, it will endure forever? How long is forever? How, how long do you describe forever? Forever is a long time. Uh, and when we look at that word forever, oftentimes it has that idea of something continuing into the future. It has this idea of an enduring reality. It, it is a long time. But we might look at this and think, well, maybe it is just saying that his kingdom will last a long time. But there's reasons why we can't go down that route. Because when you look at it, it is stressed multiple times, three times by the Lord, that it will endure forever. So it's not just that it will endure for a long time, but with time without end. We also realize that this is not just saying a long time, because in David's reaction to this promise, in the verses that follow, David is marveling at the fact that it is forever. In fact, he associates the, the magnitude, the magnifying of God's name forever with the promise that his kingdom will endure forever. So David understood this as forever, forever. And we also know that this is talking about forever because that's how scripture itself interprets it. The Psalms, for instance, would make the point that his kingdom would endure as long as the sun endures. That is the idea of enduring without end. And so the promise here is one in which God promises this will endure. Now, if we know our Bibles, we might suddenly be objecting in our heads, but what happens in history? Doesn't the kingdom of David crumble? Doesn't after David, the kingdom get split into two? And doesn't the northern kingdom get crushed and then the southern kingdom get crushed? Don't the people of Israel go off into exile? How is it that we are to make sense of this promise then? Does it mean that God's promises have failed? How do we make sense of all of this? And what we have to do is we have to come back to what the promise says. The promise to David here includes both a conditional nature and an unconditional aspect as well. You remember in verse 14, it says, when uh, he sins, uh, there in verse 14, it says, uh, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men. The Lord did warn that there would be consequences for disobedience, that he would punish them for turning away in sin. But there is also an unconditional aspect. No matter what, God's steadfast love will endure and his kingdom will endure forever. So how can both of those things be true? And ultimately, both of those things can be true as we look to the Lord Jesus. This is what the prophets were really wrestling with. As the prophets spoke about the crumbling of the nation, as they spoke about God's judgment on Israel, they said this is the fulfillment of God's conditions. 
You guys have committed iniquity and the Lord's judgment is coming. And yet at the same time, the same prophets would say, and yet God's promise endures. There will come a shoot from the root of Jesse. What Isaiah was saying is is that the tree will be cut down and it'll look like it's all over. You see a tree being cut down, all you see is the stump and you think the tree is dead, the tree is gone. And yet sometimes you can see a shoot spring up and there is a new beginning. And that new life can grow even in the midst of the tree being cut down. That's what Isaiah prophesied. Judgment and yet fulfillment. God's conditions will be fulfilled because they are anchored in God's own plan. And so why is it that we can still hold to these promises? The prophets themselves did. In spite of everything they were seeing in terms of God's judgment, they still held on to this fact, but God promised. God's promises a blessing are rooted in a king, in a son of David who would rule forever. And so they told the people to look to those promises. That's the anchor of our faith. And ultimately, the Lord Jesus comes into this world as the son of David. The Lord Jesus himself fulfills this work. He even echoes it when he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up. Jesus is fulfilling the work that is being given to him, that he would build a house for God's name. Jesus himself would come to fulfill the relationship of father and son as one who belongs to the father and yet gives undevoted or gives a a complete obedience to the father and one whose kingdom is marked as an eternal kingdom, whose throne is described as a glorious throne and who gives eternal life to all who call on him. And you know, Jesus does that by fulfilling both the conditional aspect of this promise and the unconditional. Jesus fulfills this prophecy by facing the rod of God's judgment. That Jesus himself uh, faces the, the judgment of God. He was stricken with the rod of judgment, as Isaiah says, for the transgression of my people. And so in Christ, What is being promised here? God's plan about a king, about a kingdom that would endure forever is fulfilled in Christ who has been given authority over all things in heaven and on earth whose kingdom is spreading across the world that Jesus' reign will never end. It's only in Christ that we see God's word being fulfilled. But we see how his plans become the anchor of how we are to live. Rather than simply living our lives based on what we hope to do, we are to live recognizing what God has purposed to do. And he has revealed that to us in his word. If we are to find God's favor instead of God's judgment, we are to look to his promised king, whose reign endures forever. And in him, we can find blessing. The three things that are promised here are a great name, are a place and rest. And in Jesus, we find the fulfillment of the work that is appointed to the offspring of Abraham, that he would build a house for God's name, that he would be a son who obeys the Father, and his kingdom would endure forever. 
as you think about the plans that shape your life, both in the short and in the long term. Let us live recognizing that God's plans are foundational and they are more secure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for your revelation. We thank you that uh, you reveal to us uh, your purposes and we thank you that your plans are good. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, to trust in the outworking of your purposes and to see how they point us to Christ. We thank you for the kingdom of God, and we pray that your kingdom would come, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven.